This episode is brought to you by Scribe. Scribe is my premium, high-level training for aspiring authors and accomplished authors. For a number of years, Scribe has been a live event. But recently, we've put the entire training online. So no more airfare expenses or hotel fees. No more face diapers. No more fear of catching a disease that was spawned by some guy who decided to eat a bat. <clears throat> you can watch the training videos and download the notes as well as the cheat sheets all from the comfort of your own home. Plus, you'll receive over $6,000 in bonuses, which includes a private Facebook group where you will receive further coaching and connect with everyone who has gone through the training in the past. Scribe covers everything from how to write a successful book, to how to finish it, to how to get it published, and the hard part, how to promote it so that people beyond your family and best friends will want to buy it. Head over to attendscribe.com attendscribe, all one word, dot com, and you can read all about it, including testimonials from those who have gone through the training. Hello again, ladies and germs. Welcome to another edition of the Christ is All podcast. And I am excited to unveil the current topic, Stairway to Heaven Rewritten. Now, if you've been listening to the podcast for any length of time, you will find a number of episodes, both in the past and more recent, where I have featured new songs. Most of them have been songs with rewritten lyrics to other tunes. Some have been originals. But I am one who believes that one of the best ways to communicate the purpose of God, the riches of Christ, the experience of the deeper Christian life, and all of the wonderful themes that are found in Scripture, including God's eternal purpose, one of the best ways to communicate all of that is not only through the preaching of the Word, but also through the vehicle of music. And Christians, from the very beginning, the first followers of Jesus Christ that we read about in the New Testament, were people who wrote their experiences and their insights and their encounters and the wonderful truths of Christ and his body to tunes. They wrote hymns. They wrote spiritual songs. They wrote psalms. And we see examples of this throughout the New Testament. And that has been picked up by Christians ever since. And going way back, even to the Reformation, the days of the Reformation, Christians took the tunes of their day and rewrote the lyrics to match their experience and the truths that they were discovering. So it's nothing new, but I think it's been a lost art. That leads me to today's episode. One of the most iconic songs that has ever been penned and recorded is Stairway to Heaven by the group Led Zeppelin. And that is reportedly the song that has been played on FM radio more than any other. And there's good reason for that. If you've ever listened to it, it's about a seven-minute journey that you're taken on. And the music is so compelling and so extraordinary. And the lyrics so mysterious that it doesn't feel like 
you just burned up seven minutes after the song is over. Now, for a long, long time, I have wanted to rewrite this song, and I have never seen anybody do it, and so I wanted to write the story of the Bible from Genesis to Revelation in a way that would match the music to Stairway to Heaven. Now, let me explain the vision that I had for this. When the lyrics were rewritten, my vision was that I would enlist the help of a professional music artist who would use the existing original track of the music, Stairway to Heaven, because I don't think the original track can be improved. I think it can only be devalued and diminished if it's duplicated. But the original track the soundtrack. I would take the original track and they would sing with the track the rewritten lyrics. And my vision went beyond that. It would be not only an audio, but it would be a video where the new lyrics would appear on the screen as the artist was singing the revised version of Stairway to Heaven. Now, this is called a derivative copy. If you were to go to YouTube... I'm recording this in early 2023, and I say the date because YouTube changes constantly, but as of the time of this recording, if you were to do a search on Stairway to Heaven covers, you would find many covers. And I did some investigation on this, and I discovered that many of them did not get permission from the music artist, which technically you're supposed to do. And YouTube, for whatever reason, did not take those particular versions off of their platform. And some of them have been up for quite a long time. There is also a karaoke version of the song, which is the original. And again, early 2023, at this time, the individual who put it out, their handle is CC Karaoke. I say that because there's some other versions that are labeled karaoke and they are not the original soundtrack that Led Zeppelin created. And I think they're far inferior. So that was my vision. And I was starting to put feelers out to some of the musicians who I know to see if they'd be willing to record the track with the new lyrics. And as I investigated further, I realized that this was not something I felt comfortable doing, even though there are many, many covers of Stairway to Heaven on YouTube. And most of them, if not all of them, did not go through the proper channels in receiving legal permission. And they're still on YouTube. I just felt that for me personally, I didn't feel comfortable creating the derivative copy and then putting it on this podcast. Having said that, I don't want the new lyrics to be wasted. I think they really capture the unfolding drama that is in the scripture. It took me, and I'm estimating here, about five to seven hours to rewrite the lyrics. may have taken longer. It may have taken a little less. I don't know. I didn't count it, but that's how it felt. And I feel very good about the lyrics, and I'm going to be featuring them to you, as well as putting them in the show notes. Now, after you hear the song with the new lyrics, and I'm not singing them, by the way, <laughs> I'm reading them, you will then hear two messages that I have delivered on the eternal purpose of God and the bride of Jesus Christ that will inform the lyrics 
They'll give you the biblical texts that are used. Not only that, but there is a book entitled From Eternity to Here that I wrote some years back. And the rewritten lyrics, the message is there with all the scriptural texts. So I'm going to leave that with you. That will follow my reading of the new lyrics. I'm not asking anyone to record this song. But if you have it on your heart to do so, and you have the liberty to do so, the only thing I would ask is, number one, you don't change any of the rewritten lyrics. Two, you read the lyrics places where the original says, Ooh, it makes me wonder, and I have changed that to something else. And you'll see it in the show notes. So you'll want to use the lyrics from the show notes. And then third, I am really only interested in hearing the song sung to the original backtrack rather than an alternative version of it. So I'm only speaking about what I am interested in, that which I've desired and the vision I've had in my own heart. In terms of putting lyrics up on a video screen... (laughs) the rewritten lyrics that is that's a tall order and that can always be done later but to be clear on the one hand i do not feel comfortable producing such a version myself via hiring people and then posting it on our youtube channel on the other hand i'm not going to prevent anybody else from doing just that and if someone has it on their heart to do it they have the liberty to do it i would love to see it the only other thing i will say is that a person to pull this off the way i had envisioned it has a really really good singing voice and they're able to hit those notes that robert plant hit and i don't know how common that is i suspect it's not common i know i can't even come close to it with my voice range and i'm also not a professional singer so anyway i hope the idea blesses you and now i'm ready for the next segment where you will hear the rewritten revised lyrics the music to this song is epic brilliant majestic elegant the tempo starts off slow but it gradually speeds up and it builds and builds and builds until it's spectacular high fever pitch ending. I wish I had the voice to sing the song myself, but I do not. So what I'm going to do is read the lyrics and you can find them in the show notes of the podcast. Here it is. I've entitled it The Romance of the Ages. This is the story of how the Lamb receives the reward of his suffering, which is an eternal bride without blemish. And you and I are part of that eternal, glorious woman. The Ecclesia of God, the Bride of Jesus Christ. And here are the rewritten lyrics. There's a lady who's pure. Hid in God, she's secure. And she's waiting to wed her true bridegroom. She is young and she's free, peerless worth she has seen, 
By his word she is sure where she came from. And she's wearing a white gown that's spotless. There's no wrinkle, no flaw, found in Christ from before. The whole world ever came into being. New creation, behold, without blemish she glows. With his presence she shows forth his nature. She's the pearl of great price, a dear treasure to Christ, and the Spirit is crying for marriage. Sterling beauty men see, by her light they're set free, and her garments are fragrant with glory. When he died on that tree, blood and water redeemed, and his side was the womb where she came from. And a new day will dawn for all who stood long, and the angels will chorus with laughter. She is the woman God has dreamed of before creation. The new Jerusalem is coming. The lamb is ready to escort her to his chamber. The spirit's calling her to join him. And it makes me love him. Her heart is captured by his beauty and his glory. 
the bridegroom's calling her to join him. Dear lady, can you sense his nearness? He's been waiting. The lamb is ready to appear now. And now the drama, it unfolds All that the prophets had foretold there stands a lady, we all know, who beams with light and is extolled, and all within her turns to gold, exquisite stone and pearl from old, when she is one with him at last, the bride is ready for the lamb. She'll be his wife upon his throne. And she's waiting to wed her true bridegroom. In Genesis 1 and 2, you have a presentation of creation before the fall. The fall occurs in Genesis 3. So there's no sin in Genesis 1 and 2. It's the only two chapters in the Old Testament without sin. And then in Revelation 21 and 22, you have the only two chapters in the New Testament that are without sin. Because the fall has been erased in Revelation 20. So Genesis 1 and 2 and Revelation 21 and 22 are the only four chapters in the entire Bible where there's no curse, there's no fall, there's no sin. And they mirror one another. And here is the awesome truth about those four chapters. The entire Bible is the unfolding drama of all the themes that are in Genesis 1 and 2 and you can trace them through all the Old Testament and then you can trace them through all the New Testament until their climax their consummation in Revelation 21 and 22 your Bible really is not 
a conglomeration of stories and laws and rules and propositions, there's really one dominating theme that runs like a golden thread through Genesis all the way to Revelation, all the way to the genuine leather. And that theme can be put in three words. So, if you would, turn to Ephesians. We're going to look at a few passages in Ephesians. And this is going to be the introduction to the message tonight. Ephesians chapter 3, looking at verse 11. This was in accordance with, and here are the three words, the eternal purpose. I would like you to circle or underline those three words. The eternal purpose. Which he, the Father, carried out or formed. And formed, I believe, is a better translation. Formed in Christ Jesus our Lord. The governing theme of the Bible is God's eternal purpose. And yet, we live in a day where we hardly ever hear anybody talk about it. Yet it is the dominating theme of Scripture. Not only that, but it is the entire reason why God created in the first place. Not only that, the eternal purpose of God is the only reason and the only justification why any church should exist. To fulfill God's eternal purpose. There is no other biblical reason for it. And the reason why you're in this room, whether you realize it or not, is to discover or begin to discover the eternal purpose. Because it's all tied up in this thing called the church. Now let's look at a couple of passages in Ephesians. We're going to look at two of them. Turn to chapter 5 of Ephesians. And let me just say this, that Ephesians is the high watermark of divine revelation. The biblical revelation does not get higher, deeper, or richer than what is in Ephesians. And I believe that when Paul preached to a young church, when he planted a church, what we have in Ephesians is basically what he presented first. Ephesians 5, verse 25. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her. Notice the church is called a her. So that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. That he, Christ, might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. So husbands also to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself. No man ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ also does the church, because we are members of his body. Verse 31, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and shall be joined to his wife. And I would like you to circle the word wife. You can also use the word bride if you wish. 
joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is great. But I am not speaking of Adam and Eve, which I just quoted, Paul quoted Genesis, speaking of Adam and Eve. I'm not speaking of Adam and Eve. I am speaking about Christ in the church. I am speaking with reference to Christ in the church. All right, now turn to Ephesians chapter 2, verse 13. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 13. But now in Christ Jesus, you who formerly were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who made both groups, and the both groups here are Jew and Gentile. Both groups into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall by abolishing in his flesh the enmity or the hostility, which is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so that in himself he might make the two, Jew and Gentile, into one new man, one new humanity, thus establishing peace and might reconcile them both in one body. And I'd like you to circle the word body. In one body to God through the cross, by it having put to death the enmity. And he came and he preached peace to you who are far away, and peace to those who are near. For through him we both have our access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints, or the holy ones, and are of God's household. I'd like you to circle the word household. Some translations have family. And that's a better translation. God's family is household. Verse 20, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole building being fitted together is growing into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling and I would like you to circle the word dwelling that can also be translated house into a dwelling or a house of God in the spirit alright we have four terms in those passages and all of them have to do with God's eternal purpose we have a bride or a wife we have a house or dwelling. We have a body and we have a family. Now, how many of you here have ever watched any of the Star Wars episodes? Raise your hand if you have watched Star Wars. Okay. I'm going to tell you how bad Star Wars is and why you're a sinner if you watch Star Wars. No, that's not. I can say that. No. Um, in May of 1977, Star Wars hit the American cinemas. Do you know which one began first? Which episode? Four. That was the first one we ever saw was episode four. It's called A New Hope. In 1980, they released episode five. The Empire Strikes Back. In 1983, they released Episode 6, Return of the Jedi. And then, years passed, and in 1999, they released Episode 1, 
The Phantom Menace. In 2002, they released Episode 2, Attack of the Clones. And in 2005, they released Episode 3, Revenge of the Sith. So Star Wars came out, 4, 5, 6, and you had to wait many years, and then you got to see 1, 2, 3. And here's the point. You really didn't understand what was going on fully. You didn't understand the big picture until you saw 1, 2, and 3. Unless you read the books, of course. But I'm just talking about movie watchers. Well, brothers and sisters, it's the same way with how we've been trained to understand God's purpose. If you ask most Christians today and you say, what is God's purpose? central primary purpose his highest purpose what is the thing that beats in his heart that he wants more than anything else the answer is to save the lost everything comes back to that or to make the world a better place to improve this world we Christians have an obligation to do that well dear brothers and sisters neither of those is God's eternal purpose But the reason why we think they are God's eternal purpose is because we start the story in the wrong place. Just like Star Wars started 4, 5, 6, and it wasn't until later that we got to see what 1, 2, and 3 was, we start the story in Genesis 3 with the fall of humans. And that's where we begin everything. We are fallen. Humans are fallen. we got to get them back into fellowship with God. The world is cursed. we got to remove the curse and make it a better place to live. But dear brothers and sisters, the story doesn't begin in Genesis 3. It begins in Genesis 1 and 2. Before the fall. God had a purpose for human beings. There was something in his heart that provoked him to create this earth and Adam and Eve and humanity that had nothing to do with the fall, that had nothing to do with the curse because he created it not in need of salvation. He created humans not fallen. Are you with me? There was something else he wanted. And here's the point. He's never let go of it. Never. Now, someone in this room just heard me say, salvation of the lost is not important, and trying to make the world a better place is not important. I never said that. I said it's not God's highest intention, it's not His eternal purpose, it's not why He created. Okay, are you with me? Go back to Genesis 1 and 2, and we're going to pick up four themes that you can trace from Genesis 1 to Revelation 22. And they are, you circled them in Ephesians, because Ephesians is all about the eternal purpose. And it begins not with human need, but with God's desire and intention. You see, the salvation of the lost, guess who's at the center of that? Human beings. We need salvation. We don't want to go to hell. We want to go to heaven. Who's at the center? Humans. Man. Woman. 
making the world a better place. For what reason? So that it's a better place to live. Who's at the center? You and me. But there's something that is for God. There's something that is by God. There's something that is through God. And it's not for us, it's for Him. But we're involved in it, which is awesome. But it's not for us, folks. And so Ephesians, read Ephesians 1. There's nothing there really about human need. It's all about God's intention before time. There was something beating in his heart that he wanted. And it comes down to these four things. A bride. A house. A body. A family. So, I'm going to take you on a tour very quickly. It's very incomplete. Just to give you a glimpse of his eternal purpose. Which is by him, through him, and to him. God, before time, wanted a bride for his son. He wanted a counterpart for his son. He wanted a creature that would be the object of his outpoured passion in love. And he desired that outpoured passion and love to be dispensed into a creature that did not yet exist and that would return that love back to him. And every romance that human beings have created in their imagination and put on film and in books is a reflection, a pale echo of the romance that was in the heart of God from before time. He invented romance. He didn't just say to himself, I'm going to create this whole thing called man and woman and romance and marriage. No, it was a reflection that came out of him. He's the one that created it. And it expresses something in the heart of God. So let's take a look real quickly. I'm going to try to speak as though you're watching a movie. So I want your imagination to work here. And I would like you to go back to the Bible and check it out. The Bible opens with a man who's alone and God the Father says it is not good for man to be alone I will create for him a counterpart and so he puts Adam in a deep sleep a deep sleep and God pulls out of his side out of Adam's side another creature this creature was in Adam when he walked this earth alone she was always in him but there came a moment where Adam went into a deep sleep and God took another being out of the first man and it was a woman and this is before the fall and she came out with the same DNA as Adam had she was much more beautiful than Adam though And she was holy and without blemish. She had no spot and no wrinkle. And so there was a woman inside the man from the beginning. And God pulled the woman out. And then the man and the woman became one. And so your Bible opens up with a marriage. And two becoming one. Now, as you read the scripture, you find that this thing called marriage, a bridegroom and a bride, keeps reappearing. There's this man named Abraham. 
and he finds a woman named Sarah and they get married and they're very old very old and one day God does something miraculous he restores Sarah who's way past childbearing age he restores her to her youth and she can bear kids now and I think that he restored her youthful beauty too because when they were over there in Egypt one of those old boys there wanted her to be in his harem now I can't really envision an old decrepit woman being desirous to be in somebody's harem no I think Abraham woke up one morning and pulled back the curtains and says what in the world is this who is sleeping in my bed God restored to her the glory of her youth is restoration of a bride and you read on and you find that Isaac is in need of a wife it is not good for man to be alone so his father Abraham sends a servant who is never named in the story and the servant travels to where Abraham's people are his kinfolk and he goes to a well and he finds a beautiful woman named Rebecca at a well and the servant talks to her and all the servant does he doesn't speak of himself he speaks of Isaac Isaac the son of promise Isaac the only begotten Isaac the one who was to be sacrificed and the servant brings her back and him who she had never seen believed and actually fell in love with by the testimony of the servant who never spoke of himself but always spoke of Isaac and Abraham they saw one another and they fell in love with each other and she was his bride his wife and then you have Jacob Jacob is the son of Isaac and he finds himself in a well and it's noon it's the high moment of the day and a beautiful young woman named Rachel appears and there's a conversation and he loves her falls in love with her and she becomes his wife and Jacob's name is changed to Israel he has 12 sons which become the 12 tribes of Israel and through various circumstances they're taken into Egypt where they're in bondage they leave Egypt they spend 40 years in the wilderness and then they go into the land the land of milk and honey flowing with milk and honey the land that God promised and the land there is a name in the Old Testament given to the land it's Beulah land and God says you Israel are married to the land the land is your wife the land with all of the riches the land that is abundant the land that produces all manner of fruit and minerals and then we keep reading the Old Testament we keep seeing these brides appear even in the book of Psalms and even in the book of Proverbs at the very end chapter 31 the virtuous woman is presented to us this incredible woman and she's married she's a bride and then the Song of Solomon if you ever read that we're talking high octane love story here and it's the story of a poor 
lowly maiden who has been captured in heart by a lofty, rich monarch. And they fall deeply in love. And the passion is relentless between the two. And the language in the Hebrew is graphic about their love and their romance to one another. We keep seeing these brides appearing in the Old Testament, starting from Eve and all. And then the New Testament opens and the reality appears. All the Old Testament was full of pictures and shadows and types. It's, the Old Testament is God's picture book. But now the reality comes. And when you read the book of John, which is the opening, chronologically, of the life of Jesus Christ, the first thing you notice is that he is being announced by John the Baptist as the bridegroom appearing to be introduced to his bride. The real bridegroom appears and he's after a bride and the friend of the bridegroom is there to meet or to cause the two to meet. And then you open up chapter 2 of John and there's a wedding. And Jesus is at the wedding. And he plays a major role there. And when you look at John 1 and 2 real carefully, you find that it's very similar to Genesis 1 and 2. It opens up with the same words, in the beginning. And as you read Genesis 1 and 2 carefully, and you, and you read John 1 and 2 carefully, it has the same rhythm. And the next day, this happened. And the next day, this happened. And the next day, this happened. That's John 1 and 2. Sounds very much like Genesis 1 and 2. And the first day, and the second day, and the third day. Hmm, this is interesting. What you have in John is the new Genesis. And then you have Jesus saying over and over again that he is the Son of Man. Interesting. The Son of Man shall do this. The Son of Man says this. The Son of Man will do this. And the word man is Adam. He is the Son of Adam. And when you read further in the New Testament, you find that Paul calls Jesus the last Adam, the second man. And he says in Romans 5, Adam was a shadow, an image, a figure of the one who was to come, which is Christ. Jesus Christ, your Lord, was the new Adam. But that's not all. He was also the new Jacob the new Israel. Very early in his life, he was taken to Egypt. And he was set free from Egypt. His parents were able to bring him out of Egypt. And the prophet is quoted by Matthew saying, Out of Egypt have I called my son, referring to Jesus. But that came from the book of Hosea, referring to Israel. So Jesus is the new Israel. He starts his ministry after he's in the wilderness for... 40 days. Why 40 days? Because it matches the 40 years that Israel was in the wilderness. He chooses 12 disciples. Why 12 disciples? Because there were 12 sons of Jacob, 12 tribes. He's the new Israel. He's the real Jacob. And then in John 4, he's sitting on a hot day at noon. 
right in front of Jacob's well. And a woman shows up. And Jesus breaks every custom of the day. He talks to a woman in public. And that was a no-no if you were a Jewish man in the first century. But that's not all. Not only is she a woman, she's a Samaritan. And Jews are not even to look at Samaritans. Now what's a Samaritan? It is a person who is half Jew and half Gentile. Listen, a Samaritan is a Jew and a Gentile in the same body. Okay, there's one person who's getting this. And he is talking to her. Not only is she a woman, not only is she a Samaritan, but she is a divorcee. And not only once divorced, five times. And not only that, she's living with a sixth man who's not her husband. And here he is, the seventh man in her life. And he's the new Jacob. And he's meeting her at Jacob's well, just like Jacob and was her bridegroom. And then he shares with her some of the greatest things that a human being can know about God. He shares it with this woman. And then she takes him back to her town in Samaria and he eats their food, uses their utensils, and breaks every custom and every law that the Jews had because you were not to eat with the Samaritans, let alone talk to them. Who is this woman? Here he is, the Holy Son of God, spotless, perfect, without sin, talking, fellowshipping, and offering salvation to a Samaritan, a five-time divorcee who's living in sin. Brothers and sisters, open your eyes. That woman is you and me. What a Lord. What a Christ. Wow. If there's hope for her, thank God there's hope for me and you. Jew and Gentile in one body, a picture of the bride of Christ. And then, the new Adam, the second Adam, is taken up a hill. And God the Father puts him into the deepest sleep of all. Death. And there he is, the last Adam, the second man, hanging on a cross, dead in a deep sleep. And soldiers pierce his side. His side. And out of his side pours forth water and blood. The blood to forgive every sin ever committed. And the water which speaks of the life of God to impart life into the dead and bring them to life. And brothers and sisters, this new Adam, this second Adam, rose again. And in the city of Jerusalem, out of the wounded side came forth 
the real Eve. That wounded side was the womb of the bride of Jesus Christ. And as he said in John 12, Except a grain of wheat fall into the ground, it abides alone. But if it dies, it will come up and bear many grains. And when God the Father in Genesis 2 said, It is not good for man to be alone. I will create for him a counterpart. Hear that again. It is not good for my son to be alone. I will create for him a counterpart. And brothers and sisters, you are looking at the counterpart of Jesus Christ in this room. Jew and Gentile. Bride of Christ. And here is the kicker. Because of the water and the blood, in the eyes of God, you and I are holy, without spot, without wrinkle, and without blemish. Because just as Eve was in Adam when he walked this earth alone, you and I were in Christ before the foundation of the world, holy and without blame. And I just quoted Ephesians chapter 1. The stories of all the brides in the Old Testament, beginning with Eve, was just a picture, a pale image of the reality. God's eternal purpose is to have a bride for His Son. One who would receive the superabundance of His outrageous, fervent, unconditional, unexplainable love. And return that love back to Him. We won't get to the end of the story yet. Let's shift over to the second aspect of God's eternal purpose. A house. From before time, God wanted a dwelling place. You can think of Him as being homeless. And us mortals, I mean, that's hard to grasp. How can God be homeless? But, you know, if you read your Old Testament carefully... Heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool. Where is the house you will build for me? We have a homeless God wanting to dwell and be at home. And this was the provocation of creation. And what happens here is we have in Genesis 1 and 2 a garden. And this garden really is, it's like a lumber yard. There are building materials in this garden. What, what are the building materials? Well, there's, there's gold. There's something called pearl. And there are all manner of precious stones. Onyx. And when God took Eve out of Adam, the Hebrew says, and God built a woman out of Adam. He uses the word built. And God is living in the garden while He's also living in the heavens. He comes and visits the garden. He walks with Adam in the cool of the day. You remember that? So the garden, it has this other mysterious thing in the middle of it called the tree of life, which is not natural. It's, it comes from another place, from the heavens. It's the tree of life. Not human life. God's life is in that tree. So the, the garden is kind of an interface between the heavenly and visible realm and the physical visible realm. It's a cross mingling between God's space and man's space. 
between the divine and the human and God is living there and his objective is for the garden to fill the whole earth and for him to have a dwelling place well the fall occurs and the garden is closed off but God has not given up his purpose to have a dwelling place and so you begin to read the Old Testament story and it's very chronological and now you see God trying to recover what he lost in the garden and he begins with Noah and Noah builds altars and tents he lives in tents and he builds altars and this is pronounced in his life he's a man of the altar and the tent now the altar speaks of self-denial I'm not here for myself I'm here for God's purpose that's what the altar is you lay your life down you sacrifice yourself for God's interest but the tent refers to this earth is not my home I am not attached to any place in this world I can move anywhere I want I am mobile that's what the tent represents Noah is a man of the altar in the tent Abraham is a man of the altar in the tent Isaac is a man of the altar in the tent Jacob is a man of the altar in the tent they build altars self-sacrifice I'm here for your purpose Lord not mine and they live in tents I'm not detached to this planet I'll go wherever you want me to go and Jacob we find he's running away from his brother he wants to kill him basically for a pretty good reason and he's he's homeless Jacob's homeless he's running and he falls asleep one night and he grabs a soft stone and uses it as a pillow which I which I never understood but he puts his head on the pillow falls asleep and he has a dream and in the dream he sees not a ladder but a stairway it's what it is in the Hebrew stairway to heaven fans Led Zeppelin fans this is the real stairway to heaven it goes from where he's sleeping to the heavens and the heavens open and God speaks and there's angels moving up and down that stairway and Jacob wakes up and he says this is the house of God I will call it Bethel and he takes the stone that he slept on and he pours oil on it and anoints the stone what is this God is saying I want the garden back I want my house on the earth when the fall happened I had to retreat into heaven but I want it back and here is the place where there's commerce between heaven and earth angels ascending and descending on this ladder and God having interaction with Jacob and Jacob realizes intuitively this is the house of the living God well you go through the story more and you find that Moses is taken up into a mountain and God rips the heavens open and he sees this pattern and the pattern is to create something called the tabernacle and do you know what the tabernacle is it is an enlarged altar and tent the first thing you meet is a big altar and then it's a big tent and it's called the house of God for God comes down in one part of that tabernacle in the Holy of Holies and he manifests his glory there but then he goes back and then Solomon comes along and he makes the house of God even bigger he builds this thing called the temple and guess what the temple is made out of gold precious stone not pearl but silver 
And it's interesting to ask the question, why silver and not pearl? Because the building materials in Genesis 1 and 2 are gold, pearl, and precious stone. And the answer is that silver always speaks in the Bible of redemption. I don't have time to prove this to you, but if you look at silver and, and, and examine it, it's always related to redemption. Well, before the fall, you didn't need silver. You don't need redemption. But after the fall, you need it. So silver replaces pearl. And there are images of the garden all in the temple. There's palm trees. There's flowers. There's pomegranates. It's beckoning us back to that time where the garden is the interface between God and humans. The intersection where man's space and God's space meet and connect. And God would show up in the temple. In fact, when it was dedicated, fire from heaven fell on the temple. So the house of God in picture form is getting bigger and bigger. An altar and a tent. The tabernacle of Moses. The temple of Solomon. Well... Tragedy strikes. The temple is destroyed by the Babylonians. They take God's people to Babylon. They stay there for 70 years. And they can't worship God, so they build synagogues. Which is their ingenious attempt to replicate the temple. But God will not go in a synagogue. He will not appear in a synagogue. 70 years passes, and the Lord opens the door for Israel, who's been taken captive in Babylon for 70 years, to go back to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple and here's the tragic fact only two percent are willing to go the rest of them are very comfortable in Babylon they built homes they've started businesses and guess what they can even worship God in their man-made synagogue God still loves them they're still his people but his best and highest is to go back to Jerusalem and rebuild the temple and Ezekiel during this time gets a vision and he sees an enlarged temple. It's even bigger than the temple of Solomon. It's huge. What's happening here? God is saying, I want my dwelling place to fill the earth. It's getting bigger and bigger. Heaven is my throne. Earth is my footstool. Where is the house you will build for me? Haggai, a prophet of the Old Testament time, makes this statement. The glory of the latter house will be greater than the glory of the former house. In other words, this new rebuilt temple will be greater in glory than Solomon's temple. And guess what? It wasn't. But Haggai was speaking of a different temple. And now the New Testament opens. We have the reality again. And Jesus Christ, your Lord, appears. And in the opening chapter of John, John 1, it says, And the word was with God from the beginning and the word took on flesh and tabernacled among us the real tabernacle showed up God dwelt in Christ he was the house of God and in John chapter 2 he actually says I am the temple destroy this temple and in three days I'll raise it back up and he was speaking of his own body they thought he was talking about that rebuilt temple over there, brick and mortar. No, he was talking about himself. He was the temple of God. And when he meets Nathaniel in John 1, he's sitting by a tree. Nathaniel is. Nathaniel has a conversation with Jesus. And Jesus says, Nathaniel, you are going to see the Son of Man 
with angels ascending and descending upon him, going up and down. He was telling him, I am the reality of Jacob's ladder. I'm the real stairway to heaven. I connect the heavenly realm and the earthly realm. I am the house of God. That's who I am. And then something happens. He is put to death. But three days later, he raises the temple up again. But this time, it's a little bit bigger. For 50 days later, on the day of Pentecost, the Spirit of God descends in the city of Jerusalem to 120 followers of Christ who now have his own life in them. And you know what happens? Tongues of fire fall on their heads. What does that mean? They are the temple of God, for the fire of God fell on the temple of Solomon. And here was the real temple. And when he said, three days you will put me to death, but three days I will raise it up. Brothers and sisters, the house of God just got bigger. And all who are part of Christ are now part of the dwelling of God himself. And that's why Peter says, we are living stones. What's a living stone? It's when oil is poured on a dead stone. Remember Jacob? And it becomes living. But see, brothers and sisters, that's not the point. God is not interested in many, many living stones being made. He wants the stones, and I'll quote Paul and Peter, to be built together in every city on the planet to become the dwelling of God Himself. You see, the Lord is not interested in visiting. I grew up in a movement and it was all about the visitation of God, you know. Let's pray for a visitation. Well, guess what? He didn't want to visit. He wants to dwell. He wants to live and move and have His being and express Himself. He wants a house that He can live in and feel at home. And that means he's got to call the shots. He has to be master of the house. Not just a visitor, not just a guest of honor, but the owner of the home. And brothers and sisters, what we have today on the planet is many living stones. We have many living stones sitting in this room. Oil was poured upon you. You were blasted out of the quarry. A dead rock. And the Spirit of God came and poured His oil on you, became a living stone. But you know what? God is not interested in an assembly line of living stones. In every city, He wants those stones to be built together. 1 Peter chapter 2, Ephesians chapter 2. Built together. And that's what they were in the first century. They were built together to form the Lord's house where He can lay His head. The Son of Man has nowhere to lay His head. Jacob laid his head on that pillow. He's looking for a place to rest. A place to be home. That's what the church is. That's what He's wanted. You see, and we've made it all about living stones. Let's go out and get those stones, those dead stones and pour oil on them. Let's get them all saved. Well, great. Go ahead and do it. But that's not what God wants. He wants the stones to be built together in every city for a house where He can dwell. You understand? Isn't that awesome? <laughs> and what is the house of God? It's where heaven and earth meet. And that's what a real expression of the church is. It's the boundary between heaven and earth. And God is really, truly in the midst of that people. And He expresses Himself. And He reveals Himself. I get passionate. 
I'm not upset. I'm passionate, okay? This is awesome to me. The house of the living God. Why did God create? He wants a house to dwell in. Well, that's the second theme. He also wants a body through which to express himself. A body. What's the purpose of a body, a physical body? It's to express the life that's in it and make it visible. If you didn't have a body, you would have no expression of your personality and your life. And so God created Adam, who was a body, a physical body. And God had a task, and that was that this creature called Adam, and of course his wife, do two things in the earth. Bear my image and have dominion over the earth. Subdue the creeping things. What are the creeping things? Well, that's the serpent. Bear my image. Make visible me, the eternal God who is invisible. Make me seen. I want a body through which to express myself for all creatures that I create to see and behold. And as you move through the story, God selects a people through the loins of Abraham called Israel. And you know what they are? They're called a kingdom of priests. A priest bears the image of God. A king subdues the earth and rules. They were to be a kingdom of priests, but they failed the task. And Jesus Christ comes to earth. God in flesh. And Hebrews says, a body you have prepared for me. A body. And Jesus Christ was the image of the invisible God. For he said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And Paul calls him the image of God. All throughout scripture. He bears the image of God. You want to know what God is like? Look at Jesus of Nazareth. That's what God is like. There is no God outside of Jesus of Nazareth. That's who God is. But he also subdues the earth. He has power over nature. He can calm the storm. And he also tramples over the creeping things. He casts out demons. And this Jesus was put to death. Yes, to forgive the sins of the world. But that's not all. To increase his body. And the body of Christ was born having his own life. And that body is a multi-membered creature. And you know what the goal of the body of Christ is? And it's literally his body on the earth. It is to bear the image of the one who dwells it. In the earth. Do you want to see what God is like? Look at Jesus of Nazareth. Well, he's gone now. He's in spirit, though. You want to see what God is like? Look at the body of Christ when it is functioning properly in a given place. And I mean functioning properly. All the members are working together. You will see Christ on the earth. And in seeing Christ, you will see God. God visible. He wanted His image to be seen. And His authority to be exercised. And that has been His eternal purpose. From the beginning. But that's not all. The fourth image 
is a family. Why did God create? He wanted to have kids. Where did the idea of the family come from? Hello? <laughs> Ever think about this? Where did this idea of marriage come from? Husband and wife, family, sons and daughters. Why sons and It is a reflection of something that's in the eternal heart of God from before time. He wanted to have kids. You see, God the Father eternally has had an only begotten Son. He begot His Son before time, outside of time. Jesus, God of God, light of light, has always existed. But He's the only begotten Son. The only begotten Son. Just let that marinate for a second. His only begotten Son. So God creates man, an image of his own son and he says be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth with my image Adam is actually called the son of God in the Bible it's in the gospels read it the son of Adam Adam the son of God Israel was to be the family of God on the earth Abraham was given the promise through you through your loins You'll bless all the nations. You'll show them what I'm like. But Israel failed because they took the blessing and they kept it to themselves. And they didn't let it go out to others. They put mirrors around themselves. And looked at one another and enjoyed the blessing and did not bless all the nations as they were called to do. And then Jesus appears on the earth. The reality has come. And he does something profoundly radical. He is the first one to call God his father. And that got him in hot water too with the religious leaders. God is your father. You're making yourself one with God. The only begotten. The son of God. But God wanted to have kids. He wanted a family. So Jesus is put to death. The one grain falls into the ground. And three days later, he's resurrected. And Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, He is a life-giving spirit. He's moving about on the earth in his resurrected state. And ten of his disciples who had lived with him for three and a half years are in a sealed room. And Jesus penetrates the walls of that room and appears. Peace be with you. The first person that saw him in his resurrected state was Mary. And you know what he said? Now he's a life-giving spirit and he makes this incredible statement. Go tell my brethren. My brethren, not my disciples, not my servants. Go tell my brethren that I'm alive. And he penetrates that sealed room and he takes a breath. But it's not on this earth. It's in the heavens. And he breathes into those ten men his own life. And brothers and sisters, listen. The only begotten Son of God is now the firstborn among many brothers. And God now has a family. And then he breathes into some women. <laughs> And now we have the sons and daughters of God. And brothers and sisters, they're not just family because they're related by divine life. Yes, that's true. 
But in the city of Jerusalem, when the church was born, they lived as an extended household. They took care of each other. They married one another. They buried one another. They lived for one another and to express their Lord and to have fellowship with their father and their elder brother, their Lord Jesus Christ. And that family was also a body. A new humanity where there was no Jew and no Gentile. Where there was no rich and no poor. Where there was no slave and no free. Where there was no male and no female. All earthly distinctions that separated human beings were abolished. And they saw one another with the eyes of God. And they were one new humanity on the earth. And we are very close to Washington, D.C. And there are people in Washington, D.C. who are trying to make this world a utopia. They're trying to use laws and legislations and politics to create a better world. To create, as it were, the kingdom of God. And Christians on the left and Christians on the right are all coming to Caesar's table and using the power of the emperor and saying, this is what we need to have the kingdom of God. But brothers and sisters, the first century Christians understood they were not of this world. They were a colony of heaven on this earth. They were a new polis, a new city, the city of God. And it was countercultural. And they lived as a community, as a real family. And they took care of each other. And there was peace in that community, in that family. And there was justice in that community and in that family. And there was liberty in that community and in that family. And it was a microcosm of the kingdom of God in the midst of a fallen world. And people looked at that and they could see that's the kingdom of God. It's on this earth. Heaven and earth are joined in the midst of these people. And they're not using the power of Caesar. They are the kingdom of God on earth. I'm excited about that. That's why I'm excited. That's awesome. The world had never seen Jews and Gentiles embrace and love one another. Never seen it. Centuries of hostility and hatred. And here was a people where Jews and Gentiles were walking into the marketplace arm in arm, singing together. And they looked and they said, what is this? It's because they are following the Lord of this world who has made the new emperor and he is a new kind of human. He is divine and he is what a real human is. And they were living by his life. And that takes us to the end of the story in Revelation 21 and 22. And out of the heavens we see a building. What is it? It's the dwelling of God. And man, humanity, and God are now dwelling together. And it's not just a building, but it's a garden. For the tree of life is there and the flowing river. And you know what the tree of life is? Your Lord Jesus Christ is the tree of life. He that eats me shall live by me. I am the vine tree. You are the branches. And there's a flowing river. And you know what that river is? It's Christ. 
And that dwelling of God, that city of God, is also a bride who loves her bridegroom because he first loved her. And we love him because he first loved us. And that new Jerusalem is not only the house of God, it's not only the bride of Christ, it's the family of God and it's a living organism. Brothers and sisters, it's a picture of the church. And God's eternal purpose is to have on every city of this planet, of this fallen, corrupt, pitiful, dirty world, a microcosm, a miniature of the new Jerusalem. A body, a functioning body where all the members function together. A bride, corporately, a people who are loving Christ and being loved by Him. A family, the family of God and a body and the house of God where living stones are being built together to form the dwelling of the Lord and where heaven and earth meet and the kingdom of God is expressed now dear brothers and sisters that's his eternal purpose and it goes beyond salvation of lost souls and it goes beyond making the world a better place it is to have a corporate expression of Jesus Christ in every city on this planet well Frank I'm interested in that what do I do I'm going to be real honest with you the house of God is built through conflict. Do you know those stones that were used to build the temple of Solomon? They were held together by friction. That means that each stone had to be cut and chiseled and chipped and sanded so that it fit perfectly with the other stones. I've just described to you what organic church life is. You get chiseled and cut and sanded. It's very transforming, but if you're not willing to die to yourself, brothers and sisters, it's not for you. Much easier, much safer to just trape yourself in a pew every Sunday morning. You don't have to deal with anybody, you know, except fellowship with the person behind you. Hey, praise the Lord. How you doing? Great, wonderful. We have fellowship. Sit down, listen to a sermon, throw money in a plate and go home. A lot easier. But to be in a community with other believers, to have a shared life with them, that's hard. But that's how the Lord gets His house. That's how a body of believers gets transformed into His image. God has an eternal purpose. It's been in His heart from the beginning. And your Bible is the story, the unfolding drama of that eternal purpose. And it all comes down to a bride for the Son, a house for the Father a body for the Son, and a family for the Father, all through the Spirit. And that's the Spirit's job, is to make it all a reality. And the center point of all of it is the Lord Jesus Christ, to see Him expressed. For He's the bridegroom, He's the foundation of the house, as well as the capstone, He's the head of the body, He's the firstborn son of the family. Isn't that beautiful? Praise the Lord. There's a girl. There's a woman. And I want to introduce you to her tonight. I'm going to read a series of passages, and I have them written out, so I'm just going to move like a blue streak and read them very quickly. And then I'm going to string them all together somehow. Genesis 1.1 in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. 
And I want you to remember that word beginning. Verse 26 of Genesis 1. Let us make man in our image according to our likeness and let them, plural, them, rule over the fish of the sea. Verse 27. And God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female. He created them. And God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and multiply. John 1 1. Listen to the language. In the beginning, we have another beginning, was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And if you jump down to verse 12, but as many as received Him to them, plural, He gave the right to become the very children of God, even to those that believe in His name. We have two words here. In the beginning, Genesis uses it, and John uses it. And we have the word them. Them. Genesis 2.18 Then the Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make him a helper. I will make him a counterpart. Suitable for him. In verses 21 to 24 of Genesis 2, the Lord God caused a deep sleep to come upon the man and he slept and the Lord took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh at the place the Lord God fashioned into a woman the rib which he had taken from the man and brought her to the man the man said this is now bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh she shall be called woman for she was taken out of man for this reason a man shall leave his mother and his father and be joined to his wife that the two shall be one. She was taken out of man. Ephesians 5.25 Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Jesus Christ gave himself up for her. Verse 29 For no one ever hated his own flesh, but he nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church. But we are members of his body, for this cause the man shall leave his father and his mother and shall cling to his wife, and the two will become one. This mystery is great, but I'm not speaking of a man and a woman. I am speaking of Christ and the church. Revelation 21, verse 2. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. Notice, a bride is coming out of the heavenlies, adorned for her husband. Revelation 22:17. And the Spirit and the Bride say, Come. The Spirit and the Bride both say, Come. Matthew 13:45 to 46. The kingdom of heaven is like a merchant looking for fine pearls. When he finds a pearl of great price, he sells everything he has and buys it. Anybody know where the first mention of pearl is in the Scripture? It's in the Garden of Eden, the book of Genesis. There is pearl, there is gold, there's precious stone. And they're produced by a river that flows out of the garden. Do you know where the last place in the Bible where pearl is mentioned? It's in Revelation. There's a city that's made of gold, pearl, and precious stone. 
Acts 2.44. We're in the city of Jerusalem. The festival of Pentecost has come. There are thousands of Jews who have come from all over the Roman Empire to be in the city for the festival. They do not live there. They're on vacation. They're leaving their homes and their families and their jobs to be at this festival. And at Pentecost, the Holy Spirit descends and the church is born. And many of the Jews who are visiting Jerusalem stay in the city. They relocate. They leave their jobs. They move their homes and their families. And they live in Jerusalem. And the scripture says, and they were together and they met day by day. Not once a week, not twice a week, but day by day. They continued with one mind. They broke bread from house to house. They took their meals together with joy and gladness of heart. And they praised God and they had favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. And then Hebrews 3.13, the writer exhorts the brothers and sisters he's writing to and he says, Christians... Exhort one another daily. Not once a week, but daily. Acts 5.14 And all the more, believers in the Lord, multitudes of men and women, were constantly added to their number. And another version says, they were added to the Lord. They were added to the Lord. Now Luke, interestingly, in the book of Acts, and sometimes he says, when people came in to Christ, he says, and they were added to the Lord. And other times he says, they were added to the church. Acts 9, 4. Saul falls to the ground and hears a voice saying, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting the church? Is that what he said? What does he say? Why are you persecuting me? Who said that? The Lord Jesus Christ. And now for one of the most mind-blowing passages in all of Scripture, it's 1 Corinthians 12, 12. Listen to this. For even as the physical body is one, and it has many members, and all the members of the body, though there are many, are one body, so also is the church. That's not what he says. He says, so also is Christ. He's saying Christ has many members. Christ is one body with many members. So also is Christ. Galatians 3.28 There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And you can add to that, there is neither Irish or Italian. There is neither Nigerian or Chinese. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. Colossians 3.11 You are one in Him who created the new man, a renewal in which there is no distinction between the Jew and the Greek. There is no circumcision or uncircumcision. There is no barbarian, Scythian, slave or freeman, but Christ is all in and all. And then I will end by reading you a story out of Mark 14, beginning in verse 3. And while Jesus was in Bethany at the house of Simon the leper and reclining at the table, there came in a woman with an alabaster flask of very costly perfume, pure nard. Now this woman is Mary. She was the sister of Martha. 
She broke the flask and poured it over his head. And John tells us that she wiped his feet with it. But some were indignantly remarking to one another, why has this perfume been wasted? Why this waste? Does anybody in the room know who uttered the words, why this waste? Judas. It was Judas. Thank you. Absolutely. For this perfume might have been sold for over 300 denarii. A one denarii is a day's wage. So 300 denarii is about a year's wage. So whatever you guys make in Ireland uh, over a year's period of time, that's how much the value was of this flask. Judas's reply, why this waste? You could have sold it to the poor. And the disciples scolded her, but Jesus said, let her alone. Why do you bother me? She has done a good deed to me. Well, brothers and sisters, I wish to introduce you to a woman tonight. She is probably one of the most neglected women in the history of mankind. Men open up the scripture and they speak from the scripture, but she is utterly, routinely neglected. She gets very little airplay, and yet she appears on virtually every page. And yet she is missed, she is ignored, she is neglected, she has all but been forgotten. I wish to introduce you to her tonight. This morning, we got an elevated view of Jesus Christ. Tonight, we're going to get an elevated view of this woman. Because I will tell you something. Behind the eyes of God, there is nothing, there is no one that is more important. She is his passion. She first appears in Genesis. In the opening chapters of Genesis, we have a statement that reflects God's eternal purpose for man, and it is not that man be saved. Now, most of us who have been the products of evangelical Christianity have been taught that God's purpose is for man to be saved, and that God's purpose for you as a Christian is to go out and get other people saved. That is a fairly new doctrine. It originated with D.L. Moody in the 19th century. God created man not in need of salvation. Would you agree with that? There was something else that God had purposed for man. Are you with me? It wasn't salvation because man hadn't fallen yet. There was something else. And we get a glimpse of it when God says, He creates this man in His image to bear His authority in the earth. God created man to bear the image of the invisible God. God created man to make visible God on the earth. But He said, Let them he was after a corporate man. And brothers and sisters, this woman that I wish to show you tonight is a corporate woman. She has many members within her. She is a corporate woman. She's not an individual. And she first emerges in Genesis 2. 
in the form of Eve. Adam is put to sleep. For God says it's not good for him to be alone. And all the single brothers at this point should be saying amen. <laughs> it's not good for man to be alone. So God puts his man to sleep. And he pulls out of the man a rib. And from the rib he fashions a woman. Was Eve created? No. Eve appears on the eighth day, the day after the Sabbath, the day after God rested, the day after he said, it is finished. Then in chapter 2, she makes her appearance. He pulls from Adam while he is in a deep sleep, a rib, and he fashions, he builds, the Hebrew word is he builds a woman. Now listen to me, brothers and sisters, that woman has the exact same genetic code as Adam does. She is inseparable from Adam. She is the increase of Adam. She's bone of his bone, flesh of his flesh. She came right out of his side. She is Adam in a different form. She is a part of Adam. You can't separate Adam from Eve. They are one, though they are distinct. Their genetic code, their genes are exactly the same. She's not another creation. She's another form of Adam. Well, we continue on in the Old Testament. And we meet woman after woman, from Sarah to Rebecca to Rachel to Ruth to Zipporah, Moses' wife to Abigail, David's wife. And then we meet a woman in Proverbs 31, a virtuous woman. And then we come across the Song of Solomon and we see another woman. She's a bride. She's a beautiful bride, madly in love with her husband-to-be, her fiancé. All of these women, from Eve to the woman in Solomon, are pictures, are photographs, are a an image of this woman I would like to introduce to you. Who is this woman? Well, we come now to the New Testament and we, we move into the Gospels. And now, the real Adam appears. According to Romans 5 and 1 Corinthians 15, Adam of the Old Testament, the first man, was but a picture, a Kodak photo, of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the real Adam. And as he walked on this earth, my brothers and sisters, he had a girl inside of him. Just like Adam had a girl inside of him. And God had to put Jesus Christ to sleep in order to get her out. Do you remember? After God created on the seventh day, he said, it is finished, and he rested. And then Eve appears on the eighth day, which is the first day after the Sabbath, which is Sunday, the first day of the week. Jesus is hanging on the cross. He is dying because there is a pearl of great price 
inside of him and like the merchant he is willing to give everything even his life to get her out and he is hanging on the cross and he says it is finished and what happens he goes into a deep sleep he's pierced and out of his side comes water and blood the blood for the cleansing of that woman for she would become defiled but the water which speaks of the life of Jesus Christ the divine life the life that that woman will live by the life that will produce that woman and he goes into a deep sleep and God reaches into Jesus Christ and he becomes spirit and on the day of Pentecost she is given birth the real Eve emerges and in one day she manifests 3,000 members within her and the world for the first time beholds this woman who afore was only pictured through these women beginning with Eve on throughout the Old Testament but here's the reality the one grain falls into the earth and dies and it produces many grains and the spirit brings those many grains together to create one loaf who is this woman there she is in Jerusalem her members are easily seen they're falling in love with one another they're taking care of one another they're with one another every day and we have now on the earth a them that's bearing his image we have a them that's ruling over principalities and powers and this woman is so gorgeous she's so beautiful she's so magnetic she's so charismatic she's so hypnotic that the Jews look at her and behold her and they are drawn to her and they leave everything behind because they've come from all over the Roman Empire and they come to dwell in Jerusalem to be part of her and brothers and sisters when a man sees a woman and he falls in love with her he'll crawl over cut glass to be with her and that's exactly what happened I'm going to tell you something that woman is the greatest evangelist that ever lived are you following what I'm saying she brought more people to Jesus Christ than the greatest tent preacher that's ever lived or TV preacher or door-to-door -door evangelist she the them that was on the earth well Saul the Pharisee sees the power and beauty and magnetism of this woman so he begins to persecute those within her and Jesus Christ the man appears out of the heavenlies and he says Saul why are you persecuting me she is indistinguishable from him do you know why because just as Eve came out of Adam and was made of the same substance as was Adam just as Eve came right straight out of Adam's being 
and was bone of his bone and flesh of his flesh, so too this woman has the same genetic code as does Jesus Christ, for she came right out of him. She's bone of his bone and flesh of his flesh, and in the eyes of God, he sees no difference. She is inseparable from him. That's pretty incredible, isn't it? And this is why Luke can write about her and he can say, and the Lord added to her. And in the same breath say, and God added to the Lord. For she and her Lord are one. But that's not all. Jesus Christ is madly in love with this woman. She is his fiance. And when he looks at her, he sees himself. And when he looks at her, he sees a being that's gorgeous. And just as Adam looked upon Eve and fell in love with her, and she came out of him, and then he wanted to become one with her, so too Jesus Christ knows where she came from. And he wishes to become one with her too. And he is waiting for the day where she will be fully ready and fully prepared so that he can become one with her. Right now, she is a virgin. A bride is a virgin. But he's waiting for the day where she will be his wife. And he will be one with her. She came out of him. And one day, she's going to go back into him. Who is this woman? She is so magnetic, she is so glorious, that when her members come together, Paul says, an unbeliever, a heathen, a pagan, someone who doesn't care about God, can come in the midst of her, and he sees her members functioning, and he steps back, and she expresses her Lord, and he says, God is in the midst of her. There's a scripture that says the woman is the glory of the man. This woman is the glory of Jesus Christ. She is the reflection of Jesus Christ. And I'll tell you something else. Every one of you in this room has a longing to be within her walls. She is your natural habitat to be inside of her. You were made for that. You were made to be in her. You have a longing. You have an innate desire. If you heard the message this morning and it stirred in you a hunger to know Him more deeply, that's your Christian instinct saying, I want to go home. That's your instinct saying, I want to become a full functioning part of her. Who is this glorious woman? Who is this woman that is so one with Christ she's indistinguishable from Him? Who is this woman that is bone of his bone and flesh of his flesh, wherein he is madly in love with her? Who is this woman who he's passionate about? He has a driving passion to be with her and just to be loved by her. Let me tell you something, brothers and sisters. What do you suppose a man would desire more? To have the woman he is in love with to serve him hand and foot? To have the woman of his dreams and desires to bow down on her face and knees and begin to worship him or to have that woman just love him 
just love him for who he is? You have a Lord that's lonely. Just like Adam was lonely. And he is a Lord that wants to be loved. Over and beyond everything else, he wants to be loved. And he has eyes only for this woman. He cannot see anyone else. She's the most important thing to him. Just as a man will fall in love with a woman, he can't think of anybody else but her. A consuming obsession. She's always on his mind. He's always thinking of ways to bless her. Where do you think that comes from? Do you not know that you were made in the image of God? It's a reflection of the passion that Jesus Christ has for this woman. Who is this woman? Well, brothers and sisters, this woman is the church, the ecclesia. And you who are sitting here in this room, brothers and sisters in Ireland, all of you are part of that woman right now. Indistinguishable from Jesus Christ. Elevated to be bone of his bone and flesh of his flesh. And what is he wanting? He wants a them in Ireland. A them to come together in local expression, visibly, geographically, in a touchable manner, not in some spiritual way where, oh yes, we're the body of Christ, we're the bride of Christ. I see my brother and sister who live just down the street from me and they're in the same city. I see them once in a while and yes, we worship in all different places. No, but like Jerusalem, they came together and they expressed him together and loved him together. This is what your Lord is after here in this country, in this city. A woman. This is a glorious woman. Do you realize that Eve emerged before the fall? Eve was unfallen when she came out of Adam. Do you realize that because the blood came out of your Lord's side that he has cleansed you and you are blameless in his eyes and he sees you as pure without blemish do not look at yourself through the eyes of man or through your own eyes get behind the eyes of your God and see that you are indistinguishable from him for this is who you are you are part of that woman now I want to close with a story and it's a story we read but before I do that, I want to ask the question, is this woman important? You better believe she's important. The very scripture opens with a picture of her, and it ends with a picture of her. She's Eve in Genesis 2, and she's the bride, the wife of the Lamb, the new Jerusalem, the city of God who will become one with him in Revelation 21 and 22. The scripture opens, the scripture closes, and she's on every page. Don't tell me the church is not important. When she's the very fiancé of Jesus Christ, whom he died for. 
She's the pearl of great price who he sold everything for. And his people will also sell everything to be in her as well. Just as they did in Jerusalem. They left all to be part of her. Don't tell me she's not important when she's indistinguishable from your Lord. And he can say, why are you persecuting me when she is being bruised? Don't tell me she's not important when Paul could say that the church is Christ in corporate expression, 1 Corinthians 12, 12. Don't tell me she's not important when the very closing words of Scripture are uttered from her mouth and they come out of her throat and she says, Come, Lord Jesus. The Spirit and the Bride say, Come. She is the most important thing there is to God. She is His obsession. She is His consummation. She is His passion. She is what drives Him. And this is what your Bible is about. It's about a boy and a girl. It's about a man and a woman. It's about a woman inside of a man who comes out of him and then goes back into him. Your chief task, my chief task, is to love him as part of that girl. And if you have a heart to do so, there's a world out there where you will learn how to together and you will corporately express him and she makes him known. You, as an individual Christian, will never, ever know him deeply on your own. You need to be inside her. And you will never express him on your own. You need her to express him. We're talking about the very heart of God. We're talking about the center of God's heart. It's that girl. It's that woman. She eclipses everything else. Well, here's the story. Jesus Christ is over at Simon's house. He's reclining in the chair and in walks in a woman. Her name is Mary. Ever since she's been a little girl, she has been collecting very costly perfume. She's been putting it in a flask made of alabaster. She's collected it all of her life. This is her security. This is her bank account. This is her retirement fund. It's an entire year's wage. This is the most important thing that she has. But she has caught a glimpse of the man, Jesus. And her heart is taken and she's captured by him. And she walks in with that flask. Would you like to hear the gospel of Judas? Three words. Why this waste? Why are you wasting all of this money? Your security, your possessions, your retirement fund. Why are you wasting it? You could have done so much with this. And he gets real religious. You could have given this to the poor people. Sounds good, doesn't it? Why are you pouring it out on his head? Why are you wasting it? Waste is giving more than what's required. And she wastes it on him. And the Lord rebukes Judas and the other disciples because they bought into that religious junk. And he says, be quiet. She is doing a good work on me and what she has done 
is so precious that this will be heralded wherever the gospel goes forth. She wasted herself on me. And this is what that woman does. She wastes everything on him. And she'll waste everything to be a part of an expression of the bride of Christ to reflect him. The soil of Ireland cries out for this girl to be expressed. And the call goes out to all of you. The call goes out to everyone who will hear this message. That the bride of Christ will once again be seen visible in her sterling beauty in this country. A small expression, perhaps, it doesn't matter. But a people who will only pursue him who are throwing out all the other stuff, who are chucking it all, I mean your pet doctrines, the things that divide you from one another, and the agendas that drive us, where we say the only thing we want is to know him, and to know him together, and we know we can't express him as individuals, she must express him, let's get within her walls, and let's express him together, but let's love him first. Would to God that he would raise up such an expression of people here in this country. She would be characteristically Irish, but divine just as well, for she has divine life flowing through her veins, for she has come right out of him. Bone of his bone, flesh of his flesh. And you have a country, you have a nation, and I'm, I'm keenly aware I'm a foreigner here. I understand that. And if I'm wrong, you can rebuke me. But it seems to me that you have a nation where the young people are growing colder and colder away from God and Jesus Christ. Do you know why? Because the church in this country is irrelevant, it's religious, it's stale, it's cold, and it's steeped in unreality. And our Lord, His heart breaks to see an expression of the church of Jesus Christ like she was in the beginning, now presently rearing her glorious head. And let me tell you something, it is her that will attract those young people. But if she's not here, if her members are scattered everywhere, she will not be seen. And if she is not seen, he will not be seen. Not in his fullness. This is the antidote. It's not more evangelistic programs, brothers and sisters. It is the church that is the greatest evangelist on this earth. It was her, it was this woman that shook the Roman Empire to its foundations. The people could not believe what they were seeing. There were these pagans were falling in love with one another. They had joy, they had liberty, they had freedom. And when they came into the midst of this people, they were swept away by her magnetism and her love. And they saw the Savior because the woman is the glory of the man. And she reflects Jesus Christ. None of us in this room individually can reflect Him. We need the body of Christ functioning, real, expressing Him. Now, I told you in the beginning that none of what I would share with you is theoretical. We live in the very issues of this. The brothers and the sisters in the churches back home, and this is true in other countries too, 
They really have a passion for that girl because the Lord has a passion for that girl. They know, they know who they are. They know God wants of them and they're standing in that. And their chief occupation is to pursue Him and to love Him. And one of the ways they express Him and the bride is by the things that the brothers do for the sisters in the church and the things the sisters do for the brothers in the church. And it's quite beautiful. And we have watched unbelievers come and see this and it blows their mind. They have never seen anything like it. And they walk away with the reality of Jesus Christ and his greatest passion to church. And I'm going to close by asking one of the brothers to come up and talk to you and tell you the story of two simple things. Just, I want to give you a picture of what church life really is like. Because I heard many people say, well, yes, we have this. So what you're talking about, Frank, we have this. We, we do this. Yes, we got this. I don't think you do. I don't think you do. I want you to listen to a day in the life of the church. Two meetings that occurred. The creativity that is in Christ, the creativity that's in the church just to display Him. He can be displayed in numerous ways. And these are just two ways. And this is not one of the regular meetings, but it just gives you an insight into how a bride can be expressed with simple people just like you and I who are really pursuing Christ. So, Brother Dave, would you come up here and just share with the brothers and sisters the two experiences? All right. <clears throat> Let me start with uh, one of the brothers' meetings. We have meetings where all the brothers will get together and uh, do all kinds of things. But one meeting, we took over a couple's house and we kicked the wife out and we were going to have a brothers' meeting. And uh, I'm saying that facetiously, but uh, we uh, we're gonna we're gonna be there for a while, and we decided to meet a little earlier, and we were gonna have dinner, and the brothers got together, and we were trying to discuss how what we were going to do for food, whether we we're gonna order out pizza, maybe order wings, and uh, it took a little while. We were going around the room, and uh, all of a sudden, the doors burst in, and all of the sisters started running in. They were dressed in white blouses and black pants, uh, just like you would see at a very fancy Italian restaurant. And they led us out to the back. And at the house, there was set up a, like a tent um, cover thing with uh, like a garnish ivy with like miniature white lights all over it and tables set up in rows. Uh, with place settings and, and a rose on each, uh, on each uh, place. And uh, they sat us all down and they each came out and served us a different course. Um, and it was probably one of the fanciest Italian uh, dinners we had, almost as good as uh, Irish lasagna. <laughs> um, <clears throat> but we had um, salads, bread, lasagna, um, fancies, desserts, little eclairs, miniature eclairs stuffed, homemade, everything was homemade. And uh, they gave us the royal treatment. And uh, they expressed how much they loved the brothers and what they thought of us. And they even wrote a song. I don't know if you guys have heard of the Italian song, That's Amore, 
when the moon hits your eyes like a big pizza pie, that's amore. Uh, they rewrote the words. And I'm not sure of all the words. That's um, agape. That's agape. And they talked basically in the song how when the brothers being, bring Christ and they show Christ, that that's agape. And they see Christ in us and really showed us how much they loved us. And it was, it was one of the most phenomenal evenings just to know as a brotherhood how important we are in the, in the body and uh, how effective we can be. And um, uh, it was really glorious. And that, that included every sister, even small children. Um, uh, but there was another evening, Valentine's Day, and America celebrates. It's a lover's holiday. Uh, guys will usually go out and give chocolates to their girlfriend. Uh, but in our fellowship, we decided that the brothers would bless the sisters. And it goes back and forth. It's, um, uh, there's su such a love and appreciation for the, the brothers and sisterhood. It, it really does. It goes back and forth. Uh, but the brothers decided that we were going to uh, really bless the sisters uh, as brothers showing the sisters that how much we love them. And we decided that we would actually take one of the houses uh, one of the brothers' living rooms and turn it into a museum. And the brothers came up with different ideas for artworks uh, to bless the sisters. Uh, there was like a painting of the Bride of Christ. I should say a collage, actually. It's actually the pictures of the sisters cut out and all put together into the shape of a woman. And then the all the uh, pictures of the brothers cut out and shaped into a man. And it, the picture represented, uh, there was colors in it and different things that represented different things. but. Um, they represented basically how we see the bride in our sisters, that they actually represent the bride of Christ, and that together we can express the body. <clears throat> there was a tree with the faces of the sisters hanging from the leaves like fruit. Um, and there was actually even one where there was a, a mirror set up on the wall with a big frame and everything, and we brought the sisters up to it. Uh, so they could actually see themselves. And that was one of the artworks. The, um, and there was several, and we put them all around, the, all around the room. And what we did was we all met at a house, and the brothers escorted, when, when everyone got there, we all dressed up in suits and ties and the whole bit, and asked the sisters to dress up. And when we all got to the house, we escorted them to the house, and they were all out in the front yard waiting to come in. And one of the brothers serenaded the sisters, wrote a song and uh, yeah, showed the brother's love for the sisters. And then we actually had two guys announce that it was going to be a museum evening and it was going to be a tour through the museum. And it was announced as brothers as the singular artist was in town and he was showing an artwork exhibit and he wanted the sisters to see it. And so the brothers would actually go around in the entire time we were putting on kind of a play kind of thing where we were acting like we were art connoisseurs and we would go through the different exhibits and say, oh, I like this. And we were going through all the different parts and, oh, well, look what this shows. And I really like how this comes together. And uh, it was really wonderful. We were uh, taking them through a tour and describing what everything meant. And we went around the room and we did that. And brothers uh, would, would be a part of the tour with a group of sisters over here. Some group of sisters were over here. And some brothers would just do it on their own. They were just, you know, filling up the atmosphere. And um, yeah, they, 
they're basically just going through each one and just showing how much the sisters mean to them. Uh, then that was all done, and uh, the brothers led the sisters back outside where another brother was going to serenade, serenade the sisters. And in the meantime, while all that was going on, we rearranged the entire place and turned it into a dining room. And we made another uh, really fancy meal. We had tablecloths and uh, napkins and the finest dishes we could get uh, to, for that many. And we had a pot roast dinner and bread and salads and the whole bit, but we didn't stop at that. It was the finest meat we could get, organic pot roast. The butter itself was a, a homemade organic butter, and the sisters even noticed that. They could actually tell the difference, and they let us know they noticed. Um, we really treated them. We just blessed them with the, the best dinner we could. And that really is what goes on back and forth between the brothers and sisters um, because there's such a love there. Another thing I want to say is um, we're not instructed by anyone to do this. Uh, we don't have, Frank does not tell us to do these things. We have basically decided on our own as brothers, man, we really want to bless the sisters. Look what they do for us. Let's do something back. And when the sisters do it back to us, man, it's overwhelming. That is, a, I guess, a day in the church. I remember you telling me, I, by the way, I didn't see this, I heard it. I heard it from some very teary-eyed sisters who were reporting this to me after it happened. They were just overwhelmed. But when you all had the mirror and each one stood in front of the mirror and you, you spoke about them, wasn't there something red on the mirror that depicted the blood of Christ yeah, that they was, came out of? The silvering of the mirror, it was rusted, but it was in like a, a blood splatter kind of a rust. And we had talked about how the blood of Jesus has actually washed each one of them. Oh, and man. They were in wow. Christ. Praise the Lord. Um, that is one small aspect of what goes on in church life. It's a very small one. But it nonetheless depicts the romance that is reflected in the church between Jesus Christ and his bride. She is someone to see. She's glorious. And when you see her, you see him. And uh, I want you to think about this. I really do. I want you to consider what it is the Lord is wanting. Hey guys, this is a postscript just before you head out and we part ways. I have created a bundle of free resources. This would include my other podcasts, the YouTube channel, several free ebooks, free seminars, and other free resources. And you can find all of that at frankviola.com. And if you go to frankviola.com, you will see in the top menu a link that says free stuff. You just click on that and you will be taken to the free resources page. Also, a number of you have asked if you could donate to help defray the costs of the podcasts and also to express appreciation for the value that you've been receiving. You're under no obligation to donate. I don't ask for donations, but should you have it on your heart to do so, you can go to frankviola.us. That's frankviola.us. And that will take you to a donate page. There's three different options you can use to donate, all of them simple. Thank you very much, and God bless.